join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come together tonight, we remember how lost we were before we found your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us behold his presence again. Behold your presence again. Emmanuel, Christ with us. And not leave this room until we have found peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'm always caught off guard by the hymn, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, particularly the fourth verse. And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road, and hear the angels sing. I believe, friends, that we are called tonight to rest. To rest. Christmas is finally here. Advent is over. The long wait is done. And the load spiritually has been lifted from us. This year has been a year of great strain and woe, has it not? In some ways, I have said that we've been in Lent continually this year after March. We've been enduring what ancient historians would call a plague. And we're tempted to think that somehow the church has never dealt with this before. We're tempted to think that somehow our place is unique in history. But that's only because we've been well so long. It's only, be, it's only because we live in a time, thank God, where this is not the everyday reality. As I was preparing for the sermon tonight, I was reading the book of homilies. Some of you have heard me read from the book of homilies before. Don't worry. I'm not going to read one tonight. Um, but the book of homilies was written in the period between the 1560s and the 1660s. And in that period, there were many plagues. There was a great plague that broke out in London in 1563, where 15,993 people died. Around the time when this sermon for the Nativity was written in the book of homilies, there was another plague, the Great London Plague, that claimed around 100,000 lives. No, the church is no stranger to plague and pestilence. We've seen it before. We've been here before. We will get through it. And the Lord is our hope and our joy but it struck me also that as I was reading that sermon, 
it used the phrase plague to describe something far worse than physical plague, than physical illness or epidemic or pandemic. No, the sermon described something so great and miserable a plague that it affects all humanity. This plague, says the homily, is most terrible, for it extends not for years, but centuries, and indeed millennia. This plague cannot be quarantined. It cannot be isolated. No mask will save you from it. And though many try to hide and mask its effects, it endures. It's on every continent, every island, every place inhabited by mankind. This plague that this homily speaks of from the 1500s cannot be vaccinated against. There's no therapeutics that will work. It affects the rich and the powerful as well as the poor and helpless. It's an inherited disease. But this disease is not one of the body. And it is so miserable because it is one of the soul. It's a disease that infects all humanity and it's a disease that doesn't end merely in death, as strange as that sounds. It's a disease that extends beyond death to eternal death, to hell. The person afflicted by this plague, instead of being a citizen of heaven as he was born to be, has become a bond slave of hell. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. St. Paul makes it clear in his book to the church, writing to the Ephesians, he says that this is the state of all humanity, spiritually, before Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he writes this, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, that's the default that we've all inherited this plague called original sin from Adam and Eve who first sinned and first corrupted not only themselves, but our very nature. Just like a virus that corrupts the body at the deepest of levels, so sin and original sin corrupts our souls and our very nature. It hijacks things that are naturally good, takes processes in our spirit and our soul that were created for our benefit and to enjoy and bends them and twists them upon themselves, making us miserable. And God, who is all goodness, righteousness, and justice, can't overlook the result of that sin. The fact that then we go and we commit sins against Him and against our neighbor from things such as our pride and our own superiority to the most wicked and vile acts you can imagine. But without exemption, all people are infected with this virus, this plague of the heart, of the soul. And all without Jesus are bond slaves of hell. Some do not know that the plague affects them, but they continually feel more dead and hopeless. You ever run into people like that? They're just miserable and they don't know why. Some deny that the plague exists. They say that God doesn't matter and therefore His commandments don't matter and therefore there is no sin and yet the result of sin twists them nonetheless 
their lives deteriorate and they become so miserable, some of them even take their own lives out of despair. It's ironic, spiritually speaking, that the most blessed of people are those who are humble of spirit and therefore are able to identify this sin plague, this virus. It's ironic because it is the poor in spirit that have the ability to get out of this position. Jesus, the child that we celebrate his birth tonight, grew up, of course, and preached a famous Sermon on the Mount where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew 5.3. Why does Jesus say that? Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Well, let's look at the others. The ignorant don't know that they're sick. They're blocked by their ignorance. Those who deny God and sin are blocked by their own pride. They're unable to see the peril of their situation and then therefore they fall into it continually. St. Hilary writes on this. He says, The Lord taught by way of example that the glory of human ambition must be left behind. And when he announced to the prophets that he would choose a people humble and in awe of words. You see, it is the poor in spirit, the humble, who are waiting to be saved, who are weary, who are desiring a Savior out of that weariness. And that Savior, of course, is Jesus Christ, who is the only cure for the spiritual condition. The prophets speak of the coming of Jesus. Our Old Testament lesson is actually fascinating today. I invite you to open up in your Bibles or look at your uh, inserts at the first lesson, which was read. Father, may I borrow your... Thank you, sir. As Leah and I were reading, my wife Leah and I were reading through this ahead of the service, she said to me, you know, this looks like an Advent reading. It seems like it's something we would read in Advent, not on Christmas Eve. But then we took a deeper look. And look at what Isaiah the prophet is saying. He's talking about watchmen on a wall in the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night, They shall never be silent. You put the Lord in remembrance. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Now, what's the prophet talking about here? Well, first of all, what's going on with watchmen? Why use that word, right? Do you know what watchmen are in the Old Testament in ancient times outside the Old Testament? Watchmen were the first line of defense. They were the people that you stuck up on your walled city, up in the towers, and they would scan the horizon and look out to make sure that an invading army wasn't coming. Because if the invading army was coming, all the gates and doors would be closed, and the army would mount the wall and form a resistance, the defense of the city. And so Isaiah here is talking about watchmen But Isaiah is interestingly not talking about the defense of the city. He's talking about something else, right? 
Look on in the verse. What are these watchmen to do? Right? What are they to do? You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give Him no rest until He establishes justice and makes a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His mighty arm. And then we go on to hear this story of how God will come save His people. Let's jump down to verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal for the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. You see, these watchmen are not to warn people off of an invading army, but rather they are to keep watch for God himself to come and be their rescuer. Why? Because watchmen and armies and walls don't work against plagues. You see, Israel, Jerusalem, is afflicted from within. The enemy is already in the walls. The The enemy is already part of them. And therefore, shutting the gates... Manning the walls is not going to save them. The only person that can save them is God Himself. And so these watchmen, rather than to look for an invading army, are to look for hope, to look for the salvation, for the Savior to come that God promises to save His people, to fling open the gates and welcome Him, not close them up and bar them. Do you see that? And so God uses His prophets, Isaiah and others, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah. You've heard all of the Christmas readings by now and the Advent readings. He uses His prophets to foretell the coming of this Messiah, the coming of God to save His people. God posts the prophets to be watchmen, to herald God's coming, to save mankind. Behold, your salvation comes we read here, to rename the poor in spirit. Rather than being poor in spirit, they are, well, what do we read? Verse 12 in Isaiah, they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, not a city forsaken. You see, rather than being forsaken and enduring the wrath of God, they will be holy. Rather than being sick and weary, they will be joyful. Rather than being discarded, they will be redeemed and saved. And so, we who are so familiar with tonight's passage from Luke first have to look here at Isaiah to see what it is that's being waiting, that we're waiting for, that the shepherds were waiting for. On that first Christmas Eve, the angels said, this very day, this very day, and that very day of the arrival of Jesus as a baby in the manger was the end of the waiting. It was the end of the gates being closed. It was the time to fling open the gates of their hearts, to go and worship the Lord, to tell others about Him. 
Look with me at the Gospel reading that Deacon Mark read tonight. This is Luke chapter 2. I'm sure you know it well. But look at verse 8, and 12, 8 through 12 specifically. And in that region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's stop there for a moment. Look at what the angel says. First of all, the angel doesn't call this child Jesus, notice, but rather refers to him by his titles. That this day is born for them, for these poor in spirit shepherds, and indeed for all people. What? A Savior. The Greek, soter. Literally, someone to save them, but also a title used to describe Caesar. You know, Caesar Augustus, on his birthday, proclaimed himself the world's Savior, using this word. But the angel says, no, this is the Savior who can actually save you both body and soul. And what else does the angel call Jesus? The Christos, the Christ, the Anointed One, that Messiah that's been waited for, that descendant of David who's been waited for for a thousand years to come liberate His people. And of course, we'll find out that Jesus liberates His people not politically, but in soul and spirit through the cross. And finally, the angel calls him the Lord. The Lord. The Master. Right? It's an Old Testament term also used to describe Yahweh Himself. God's proper name. Whenever God's referenced, it's written the Lord. Whenever you see that in the Psalms, that's what it's referring to. And so, what the angel here is saying is that this babe that's born is a Savior, He's a Messiah, and He's a Lord. But remember how I told you that the watchmen in ancient cities scanned the horizon for an army? So this king comes with an army, interestingly. But it's not the army that we expect. Look at verses 13 through 14. Who is the army? The angels are the army. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. And when the angels went away from them, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened. And the Lord has made known to us. This army appears, and this army of angels declares further to them that there is something beyond humanity going on here, that notice they start out in verse 14 giving glory to God. The angels themselves say glory to God and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. What's going on? The angels are declaring that now finally there's peace between God and man. Now finally there's a Savior who takes away the results of sin. 
who takes away the effects of that spiritual plague that has held humanity under its grip for thousands of years. Peace. Peace. This isn't just peace talking about a ceasing of war, although the word does mean that. It's beyond that. It's a Greek word, but it's also a Hebrew word before that that is uh, translated peace. And it means not just the ceasing of warfare, but a deep abiding peace. Some of you are familiar with the term shalom from the Hebrew. That's the word that would be translated here. A peace and tranquility that pervades the heart and soul, that pervades the whole person, that is the resolution, that is the redemption of humanity. A calmness, a security because of our relationship with God. To use an old word, a felicity. A peacefulness that's got joy mixed into it. God has sent Jesus to make peace between Himself and mankind to relieve us of this weary load, to restore our relationship with Him. And notice the shepherds welcome the news. How can you not? The news is a wonderful thing. Look at verses 15 and 16. I'm sorry, we'll just start with 16. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. So what's the shepherds' response? To go and worship. This is good news. This person has arrived that they've been waiting for. Let us go worship and adore. And notice also what's the second thing they do. They tell everybody around them the good news. They want to share this peace, that that they too can have this peace, that they too can know God in this way. We hear St. John the Apostle speaking to us in his Gospel, we'll hear it at the end of the service today, about who this person is, who this baby is that is in the manger. He is God Himself. In John 1, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So friends, the challenge to us tonight as we gather together is how we respond to the Gospel. How do we respond to the Gospel? Have you flung open the gates of your heart to receive this person who is our hope, who is our spiritual cure? Number one, well, I would guess that you have because you're here. The first thing that the shepherds do is to go and worship. And the first thing that we should do, responding to the Gospel, is to fall down and adore a God who cared so much for us that He became one of us. Number two, do we spread the Word? Do we spread this peace and this joy? Do we live in such a way that Jesus' is Holy Spirit living in us, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, just oozes forth from us. Do we, can we honestly say that we are living a life of felicity, to use that old term, a life of peace? 
that expresses to the world the peace that we have with God, the hope that we have, the relief from the sin, the relief from the curse, the cure for the plague. I hope we can. I hope we can. And if you come to this Christmas Eve, as I do tonight, weary, ready for 2020 to be over, if you come to this Christmas Eve just glad that you made it, you're in the right place. You're in the right place, both physically and spiritually, for you, friends, are the poor in spirit, and to you is, belongs the kingdom of God. So, I think we're called this Christmas Eve to sit and receive. Oftentimes from this pulpit, you'll hear me admonish you to do something, to go out and be something. Not tonight. Let the weariness fall off you. Sit in your seat and adore. Receive Jesus in the sacrament of the table and meditate on all that He's done for you. Friends, we've had a weary year. It's time to sit and receive the peace of God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you indeed are greater than anything that we go through. Lord, we thank you that we can experience you in the grandeur of liturgy, but also in a tender, personal relationship. We thank you that we see your nature in these things. Lord, I ask that you would rejuvenate us, that your peace would pervade us, that your felicity would shine through us. We thank you for this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.